Nima Hi, I would like to uh, study James chapter 5, verses 13 through 20 with you in this session. Uh, this passage is perhaps a bit more uh, intensely personal than some others. I first studied this pr uh, teaching on prayers for healing when I had a friend who was very ill, and I was uh, living in a church, worshiping in a church that never prayed over those who were sick. So as I studied the passage, uh, I began to think of my friend. Let's, uh, let's read it. I'm going to read it to in the NIV and maybe comment a bit on the Greek as we go. This is God's Word. I'll be reading 13 to 16 first. Is anyone of you in trouble? He should pray or let him pray. Is anyone happy or of good cheer? Let him sing songs of praise. Is anyone of you sick? He should or let him call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Greek word there is sozo, will, will save. And the Lord will raise him up. Raise up is resurrection language. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore confess your sins to one another and Pray for each other so that you may be healed. And the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Let's pray for a moment. Lord, I pray that you would give us ears to hear everything you're saying to us about a part of the Bible that um, is rich and important and yet sometimes neglected in our circles. For the sake of your name and your glory, we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I did study James for the first time intensely about 30 years ago, and at that time I had a friend who uh, had a very serious illness. It was uh, an infection of the lining of his heart, mimics a heart attack. It is life-threatening, sometimes kills people. He survived, but afterward was uh, gray and listless and lifeless and generally doing very poorly. And because I was reading James chapter 5, I... Um, I decided to share with him what I thought of this passage. I said, you know, we never, we never practiced this in our church. And to be honest, I'd never practiced it a single time in, in my life. But as I study it, it seems, I told my friend, to be a word for the church universal. It's not asking the apostles or people with the gift of miracles to perform miracles. It's saying, let the elders pray. We pray. We have elders. We have people who are sick. You're sick. Uh, Richard, do you think you would like to have the elders of your church, our church, pray over you? Uh, and think about it. And a couple weeks later, he came to me and he said, you know, I have thought about it. I read the passage. He was an elder himself in the church, and, and I do think this applies today, and I'd like to, uh, to have the elders pray over me for healing. And so we did uh, what good Presbyterians do. We took it to the other elders, and and they said, well, let's study the matter for six weeks and, and let's hope Richard doesn't die in the meantime. He didn't die in the meantime. And we came together on a Tuesday night to pray over our friend. Since it was my idea, I was going to pray last. And the pastor of the church, I was a professor at the time, uh, the pastor of the church would, would uh, get us started. And he started by doing what we might expect, and that is he uh, lowered expectations. He said, you know, the Lord can heal in various ways. He can heal physically right away or slowly through doctors or, or not through doctors. He can heal spiritually. And, and of course, um, you know, we all have a time appointed to die. And, 
and the Lord does his will. And I thought, well, these are all very good words, um, but you know, you don't need to deflate my expectations. I'm doing this as an act of obedience, not because um, I think something radical is going to happen today. Um, I'm doing this because the Bible, Bible says so, and I've got enough of the skeptic or the doubter in me that uh, my expectations are very low, I thought to myself. And then we began to pray. And Richard was in the middle of the group, and the elders are putting their hands on him. He's kneeling down, and, and we start to pray, and the pastor prays first, another person prays. And, and as the prayers began, I, um, I began to experience what I could only call uh, fire and electricity and thunderbolts of power in my arm. As I laid it on his shoulder, I was uh, quite amazed at what was happening uh, as I listen to the prayers, tentative prayers. Lord, if it's your will, heal our brother. I was thinking or sensing that uh, the Lord's healing him right now. I mean, what, what I'm experiencing is, I, I kind of think, um, to my amazement, that God is sending his strength into Richard at this moment to heal him. Uh, but I'd never done this before, and I was surprised, I was alarmed, I didn't know what, what to make of what was happening to me, and I, and I kept quiet. I wanted to shout, folks, we need to stop, we need to stop praying uh, that God will heal Richard. He is healing Richard, and we need to give thanks. But again, I kept it to myself. Uh, eventually, it became my turn to pray, and my prayer was much more, since, Lord, you are healing uh, Richard, than if you are healing Richard. It was a pretty confident prayer, uh, but I, I was so surprised and shaken by what was happening that uh, I didn't tell anybody. A couple days later, five days later to be exact, uh, we were at church and my friend Richard uh, greeted me with a sort of a wild look on his face uh, between the adult education hour and worship. And he said, hey Dan, watch this. And he tore up a long flight of stairs and I tore up after him and um, he said, and look, I'm not even breathing hard. I said, Richard, I knew it. He said, I knew it too. I said, I was afraid to say anything. Richard said, I was afraid to say anything either. I said, Richard, I, I had this sense as I was praying over you, I just this fire running through me. I felt that I could push you through the ceiling or lower you through the floor, yo you up and down. And, and he was not a small man, uh, you know, probably weighed uh, in America, uh, 220 pounds, uh, you know, 16 stone. I, I'm not sure exactly offhand, 16 or 17 stone, a big man. And, uh, and he was healed. He was changed. The doctor confirmed uh, whatever was wrong with you, uh, that has come to an end. And so my friend was healed. Over the years, uh, we began to pray for a lot more people, and a variety of things happened. Um, on a few occasions, not many, on a few occasions, there were other people who, healed, who were healed uh, immediately and radically. I never experienced uh, fire and, and uh, electricity pulsing through me again. I did occasionally have a very strong sense that God was uh, pleased to heal somebody, a man or a woman who was before us. I also had uh, times when I thought absolutely nothing was happening. To be honest, my feelings were somewhat reliable and somewhat unreliable. I, couldn't really tell you based on my feelings what would happen most of the time. 
after that. And some people, again, were healed immediately. Some people were healed slowly. That was pretty common, including people who were told, you know, you'll never walk correctly again. And, uh, you know, then they're sauntering around and, and walking fast, maybe even jogging a little after told that they had an irreparable uh, damage to their back or their spine. Other people did not get better at all, but were deeply encouraged, grew spiritually, and, and actually ascribed it to, in part, the time of prayer and preparation for prayer with the elders. And there were others who, so far as I could tell, received no benefit of any kind, neither spiritual nor physical. But the goal, and we've been doing this in the churches I've been in for 30 years now, the goal is, is to obey and to see if God wants to honor the prayers of the elders as we pray for healing in the church. Now, if you look at the flow of James, which I did in my first talk with you, um, it might seem that this passage on healing is uh, a bit different or disconnected even from the rest. Some people say James is a disorderly book. I tried to suggest in the first, uh, first segment that there's actually a lot of order, even though we don't always see it. And, and the book says there are three tests of true religion, uh, caring for orphans and widows in their distress, controlling the tongue, and being unstained by the world. And then chapters 2, 3, and 4 say, yeah, nobody really meets any of those tests. Uh, we don't care for the widow and the orphan properly. We, we don't, that's chapter 2. Chapter 3, we don't control our tongue. Chapter 4, we are worldly. We want our own desires. And, and yet the good news is, humble yourself before the Lord, and, and he will lift you up. He, he gives grace to the needy. Now, as I understand James as a whole, this, is, uh, this section is one of the last consequences of this teaching that we should humble ourselves before the Lord, and he will lift us up. And if you just want to open your Bible and follow with me, I take it that uh, chapter 4, 11, and 12, and then through 17 and through 5, 6, uh, describe sins against humility or, or acts that are not humble. And so in verses 11 and 12, when we see a sin, we slander and judge, chapter 4, 11 and 12. That's not humble. Instead, what's described in chapter 5, 19 and 20 is what we should do. We should correct and restore a brother. And then in chapter 4, 13 to 17, it, it condemns presumptuous planning, which is, again, the opposite of, of humility. Uh, and instead, what we should do, and I think this is our passage to some extent, 5, 13, 18, 13, 18, we take everything to the Lord, and we take our hopes and aspirations and all the events of life to him. And then in chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, the rich exploit the poor, which is certainly not a humble thing to do. Uh, but instead of uh, reacting harshly or something, 5, 7 to 12 say that we should wait for the Lord, the judge, to come and to deliver us. So so 5.13 through 20 is the last teaching on gospel humility, the opposite of arrogance. And a key part of that is to pray over every aspect of life. And you notice if you walk through the passage that it, it does describe prayer in the various situations in life. It says, look, if anybody's suffering hardship, let him pray. If anyone is in good spirits, let him praise. That's the beginning. If anyone is sick, let him call the elders. And if the elder elders are called, then let them pray over the person who is sick. And so the teaching is that individuals should pray over their joys and sorrows, and the church should pray over the sick. And, and really, verse 16 also says that friends should pray over sins 
And finally, verses 17 and 18, it mentions a prophet, Elijah, although it doesn't call him a prophet in this passage, um, a prophet who also prays in time of need. And so the teaching of the passage is we take everything to the Lord in prayer. Now, in uh, James chapter 5, it does begin with uh, a positive word as, as well as, uh, we might say, a, a word about prayer in times of distress. You notice that it says, that if any, is anyone suffering, let him pray. But it also says, is anyone cheerful or anybody of good spirits or different translations that are possible, let him sing songs of praise. And so the big idea is that we uh, hallow every pleasure and we sanctify every pain. So the, the main theme certainly is prayer in times of trouble. There's no doubt about that. But let's just pause over the teaching that if we're happy or of good cheer or sense God's blessing, we should sing songs of praise. We should praise him for that, which, which means, of course, we should literally sing songs of praise. And I think it would be great if we you know, comb our, our hymnody for songs that praise God for all kinds of blessings. We should probably also labor to create confessions, not just of sin, but confessions of joy and confessions of God's gift. If I can, God's gifts, if I can speak personally, I live in St. Louis, which is a city of two and a half, maybe three million people in uh, the middle of America. It's a, it's a nice city to grow up in. It's not too expensive. It's not a grand city by any measure. It's not, you know, a cultural center. It's in the middle of the country. It means it's very hot in the summer and cold in the winter. And there are no lakes or, or mountains or seas nearby. It's, you know, it's not the most exciting place to live. And yet um, all my grandchildren have decided to live here. And so their parents had no choice but to, uh, to follow suit. Uh, to say it differently, I have three children and they all live in St. Louis. And I have four grandchildren, and they all live in St. Louis. And I give thanks every single day that my children live nearby, my grandchildren near, live nearby. Two of them have chosen to live. They moved two blocks away from us, and, and we're close, and, and they're all walking with the Lord, and they're all happily married, and blessings abound, and, and we give thanks every single day and we should give thanks every day for all the blessings that come our way and, and i would encourage if there are any musicians or any uh, worship leaders who write confessions help us do this help us find ways to praise god for everything good that comes our way in, in our career in our achievements you know uh, things that happen at work where a project comes to a, a beautiful conclusion maybe an architect or a designer sees a project to its end, or a teacher ends a school year, a surgeon, and the surgical team uh, have a, a surgery that's marvelously effective, and, and we should give thanks for all of these things. We should consecrate all of our joys to the Lord. That's uh, it's not the very first thing, but I want to say let's make sure we hear that we should praise, verse 13 says, when we are cheerful, when God is blessing us. Of course, we are a little bit more prone to pray over our sorrows, and that is the first thing that the passage says. If we're suffering, we should pray. And the passage also uh, says specifically what to do if someone has a serious illness. They should go to the elders and seek them and ask them to pray. Here's the word again. Is anyone sick? Uh, let him call the elders of the church to pray over him. 
So let's just uh, comment maybe even almost word by word on some of the concepts here. First of all, uh, James does use the word sick. Uh, literally, the core meaning of the word is weak, but in this setting, of course, it means weak because of an illness, although the word can describe theological weakness and spiritual weakness as well as physical, even mental weakness. A, troubled, a falsely troubled conscience is a, is a weak or sick conscience. The word is asthene. Uh, but here, of course, the idea is primarily certainly physical. And so if someone calls the elders, they're, they're probably primarily praying for physical healing. And I'll add a little note on that. The sick call the elders. They don't call one elder who has the gift of healing or the gift of miracles. They call the elders as a group. They don't call apostles. They call the elders who are the permanent leaders of the local church, God-ordained leaders of the church, those who are ordained to oversee the church and, and to care for the church. Uh, the elders, in at least in America, are, are prone to... Um, in some other places, think their job is to make decisions. We could call that the prophet, priest, king, the kingly side of, of oversight of the church. But here we have the priestly side, the ministry of prayer and caring for the sick. Um, you know, we're, we're prophets, priests, and kings. We lead, we teach prophets, and, and we offer care. We're shepherds. We're people who love the flock, elders, teaching elders and ruling elders alike. And the whole group of elders, so far as possible, uh, comes and they pray, not just those who have an affinity or a, or a gift. In this area, James says the prayers of a righteous man are effective. And now righteousness, as we know, has two aspects. It has the objective aspect, that is to say we are righteous in Christ by faith, by the righteousness imputed to us. But there's also subjective righteousness, just as there's peace, which is objective with God. We... Uh, we know that the work of Christ tears down the barriers to God, but there's also subject of peace. We want to feel peace. And so here, I do believe it refers to the uh, subject of righteousness, not just the object of righteousness of a leader. Um, the elders anoint with oil. We know from uh, Mark chapter 6 that when the disciples or apostles went out commissioned by Jesus the first time, they anointed with oil and we have anointing with oil here and there in the bible um, oil was a balm maybe an analgesic but by itself oil does not cure nobody thought that oil cured every illness um, rather it's a sign oil is a sign of the holy spirit and it's a plea in symbolic form for the holy spirit to come and to heal, to minister. As I understand it then, as we pray over the sick and whenever I lead, we, we put oil on the forehead, signifying the, the mind, the heart, uh, and on the hands, signifying the body. And of course, a person is a body-soul unity. So we, we don't just touch the head, and we don't just touch the hands. And, and this prepares the person to expect God to act. I do take it that that follows the pattern of Jesus who often touched people. He didn't need to touch people, but he often chose to touch people before he healed them as a symbol or a sign that he was going to heal them. And, and there's some remarkable cases of that when Jesus pulled aside people who were sick for a private conversation or when he touched people and pulled them aside. On one occasion in Mark chapter 7, Jesus takes aside a man who was deaf and mute 
and uh, put his fingers and ears in his ears and spat and touched his tongue. Of course, you can't communicate readily with someone who's deaf and speechless. And so these are apparently signs that Jesus is taking an interest, is going to heal this man. And so we have a sign. It's not a sacrament, but it's a sign, an indicator, um, a solemn ceremony, we might call it, that that the Lord is taking interest. In, and that's a good thing to do before we pray. It's what James commends to us. We might call it a, a ceremony that can arouse faith. Now, what do we actually do? How sick does somebody have to be? Well, it seems like it's pretty serious, serious enough to call all the elders together and, and the elders pray over the person. Um, that could mean that they kneel down um, in the midst. Certainly that makes sense as an act of humility. It also could mean that they are uh, so sick they're bedridden and the, and the elders are laying hands on someone who is bedridden. There's also a word, not just the word sick, asthene, that's the first word. The second word, the Greek word of note is komno. Uh, in verse 15 it says the prayer of faith, an unusual word for prayer used there, um, the prayer of faith will save the one who is worn out. That's the word komno. It means somebody who's, who's worn out, exhausted, and the Lord will raise him. And that language can mean raised from your sickbed or can mean raised on the last day. Let's just take that apart a little bit. So the, the first thing we want to say then is this person is not just a little bit sick. They're seriously sick. They're worn out by their illness. And, and we can add, of course, that uh, serious illness wears us out physically. It also wears us out emotionally. And we get low. People are often depressed or anxious. And I don't think it's uh, mandated here, but I think it's certainly possible that this passage would allow us to pray over people who are depressed and full of anxiety, as, as, uh, especially if it over, overcomes them or overwhelms them. And, of course, in this long period of a pandemic, some, there's some increase, maybe a big increase, in the people who are worn out and anxious and depressed. So the elders pray over those who are physically sick, but also maybe those who are sick and exhausted and worn out. And so, so what are we seeking? Well, we're seeking um, healing. Now, it does say literally the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. But what we have to understand is the word save, sozo, which is often translated heal, is a word with a large lexical range, if I can say that to a group of pastors. I, I think you know what that means. Uh, meaning sozo often means eternal salvation, but sozo often also means uh, healing of the body or delivering somebody from, from a difficulty or a malady. And in fact, in the Gospels, when people are healed, uh, the word that's often used is sozo. I could refer to passages like uh, Matthew 9, 21 and 22, uh, Mark 6, 56, Luke 17, the lepers whom Jesus healed. The word sozo is used there. A woman with a flow of blood is, is healed. The word is, again, sozo, which can mean save. So the Greek and, and the English words have this similarity that the word save has a has a range that includes eternal salvation. So I could say, I was saved, the Lord saved me when I was 18 years old, which is in fact the case, or uh, the Lord um, saved you when you were a child or, or 25 years old. But we also use language like, I saved leftovers, I saved string, I saved 
uh, the lifeguard saves somebody, and we understand through the context which is meant, whether it's a physical saving or a spiritual saving. And so it looks uh, as though this passage is, is calling for a, a physical healing. That's what we pray for. Now, in our circles, to be honest, when I, when I raise this in churches that never pray over this matter, uh, you know, some pull back, they're reticent, uh, they say, well, you know, we're not charismatic, so we have a view of spiritual gifts and so forth. And this passage is not, is not discussing spiritual gifts. It's discussing pastoral care by the elders of the church over the people who are in the church and, and commending and commanding prayer. And, you know, of course there are excesses on this. And, you know, the idea in some circles that if you have enough faith, you'll get better. Um, that is not what's being taught here, nor is it what's being taught in the Bible as a whole. The, the, the statement, um, the Lord will raise him up, hints that, that God can raise us from our sickbed, or he can raise us on the last day. Uh, because we all know that there's a, there is a day appointed for us, um, and our, our lifespan is marked out by the Lord. And, and every one of us will have a final illness unless the Lord comes first. So... Uh, we're praying that someone would get better in this life or, or on the last day when the Lord raises us up. And, and we know that people of faith, people of great faith, weren't always healed, you know. Uh, Paul had the thorn of flesh, asked the Lord to take it away. He kept it. Uh, Timothy had a problem with his stomach. We also have records in Paul's epistles of Trophimus and Epaphroditus getting sick. And the Lord heals those whom he wills, and it's not connected necessarily to the, the strength that any one person has. Now, that doesn't mean that faith is irrelevant. It does say the prayer of faith will save. That's the ESV translation of verse 15. And that, that doesn't mean that every last person who has enough faith will be healed, as I just said. There are people of great faith who are not healed. The Bible teaches us to pray, your will be done, or thy will be done. And uh, God grants our requests or desires according to his sovereign will, and, and we accept that. Um, but there's a little bit more we can say. Uh, so let's, let's say, first of all, that Jesus, maybe our exemplar, healed people for various reasons. And, and sometimes the healing does seem to be a consequence, uh, dare I call it a reward or a response to faith. He restores the sick. On some occasions it says, your faith has healed you, your, your faith has saved you. The word is sozo, uh, Mark 10, 52, Luke chapter 7, verse 50. On other occasions, Jesus heals or provides a miracle, provides food for all kinds of people because he had compassion on them. And whether they had faith or not is not even mentioned. So, you know, he, compassion, he had compassion on large crowds that were hungry and hadn't brought enough food. And sometimes... A miracle seemed to stimulate faith. They're not a consequence of faith, but they prompt faith. And we see that in places like, uh, like John 2 and 3. Jesus performed many miracles, and, and as a result, many people began to believe in him. And we have uh, the story of the man born blind, healed, and that, that prompts him to believe afterward in chapter 9, verses 1 to 38. Um, sometimes Jesus healed people who didn't have faith, and after... The miracle, um, their lack of faith is revealed. For example, in the multiplying of, of bread and loaves, they count in, 
in John 6 shows that they weren't actually seeking Jesus. They wanted more bread when they pursued him. So uh, the connection between miracles or healings and faith is, is not simple. It's complicated. We can say this much, that in James chapter 5, when we call the elders to pray, the elders should be men of faith. And somebody who calls upon the elders should also believe. Now, the person may be unconscious. Uh, the person may not be a believer and, and may be desperately ill, and the family could call them over. But certainly, uh, God is not saying he'll, he'll honor a dead ritual. What it says is the prayer of faith will raise up the person who is worn out by their illness. Now, of course, we want to make sure we say uh, the healing is not based on the quantity or the quality of our internal faith. You know, we have the man who said, I believe, help my unbelief. And Jesus said, essentially, good enough, I'll heal your son. So it's not tightly connected, but it, what it is connected to is the God in whom we believe. It's not the, it's not the quality of our faith. We would, we would say it is the object of our faith, that is, the Lord. It also mentions in verse 15 the connection between sin and sickness. It says in 15, if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. And this does remind us that sickness has a spiritual dimension. It's something we don't talk about a whole lot these days. We understand, of course, that you know cirrhosis of the liver is connected to heavy drinking and maybe lung cancer and cancer of the lip is connected to, uh, to tobacco use, abuse, um, but, you know, we kind of are hesitant to say much more about the connection between illness and faith. So uh, today we despiritualize illness. In Jesus' day, they over-spiritualized illness. Remember, again, the man born blind? Who sinned, this man or his parents? Jesus said, neither one, don't over-spiritualize. But we need to make sure we don't under-spiritualize. Because uh, Jesus does say to the paralytic in Luke 5, your sins are forgiven. And then he heals him. And in John 5, he does tell a man whom he healed, a, a crippled man, uh, stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. And of course, we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that abuse of the Lord's Supper caused some to get sick and even to die. And Herod Antipas in Acts chapter 12 also died because of his overweening pride. And we have echoes of that, of course, in places like, or that's echoing places like Deuteronomy 28. And so uh, what we should do then is, is say to ourselves, let's consider the possibility as, as we're sick, as we lie on our sickbed, let's consider the possibility that this may be connected to sin. Let's examine ourselves. And if as a consequence of our self-examination, we come to the conclusion that our sin is connected to our illness, then we should confess. If he has sinned, he should confess that and he will be forgiven. And the Bible certainly encourages us when we're very sick to examine ourselves, just to take a, a quick foray into Psalm 32. You remember after David's uh, complicated series of sins with Bathsheba and Uriah, he says, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Uh, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped. So it had a physical effect. My Strength was sapped as in the heat of the summer. And then I acknowledged my sin to you and I said, I will confess my 
uh, transgressions to the Lord, and the Lord forgave him the guilt of his sin. That's Psalm 32. So we want to reestablish the connection between illness and sin. And, and if we have sinned, verse 16 says, we should confess our sins to one another and pray for each other that you may be healed. So maybe a word about confessing sins. This does not mean that everybody confesses everybody's sins to everybody, you know, all of our sins to everybody else all the time. I don't think there's any value in walking up to somebody and saying, you know, I hate you. I, I never told you this, but I hate you. And I don't really have any reason for that. Or I, I envy you. And, and I've actually wished for your downfall and was gleeful when something bad happened. There's nothing to be gained as I understand it. Uh, by that, but confession does have certain um, moments that are appropriate according to the Bible, and one of them is um, the offender confesses to the one offended, above all to God, and then maybe also to the one whom we offend, especially if it took place externally. If uh, someone lied or gossiped about somebody and damaged their reputation, it's probably good to say, you know, I said something that that uh, reflected poorly on you, and and I'm trying to undo that. So confess to the one offended above all God. I do think we confess our secret sins to God, especially sins like anger and, and lust and uh, envy, especially if they didn't lead to action. Uh, we confess private sins privately, and we may be called upon, especially if public figures to confess public sins publicly one by one. And of course in church we often, and I commend this, confess our sins as a part of our worship service and publicly we say we know we have fallen short of the holiness of the Lord and turn to him for forgiveness and grace and rely upon him for the healing we have in the gospel. In this uh, final short, uh, very short perhaps, uh, talk from James chapter 5, we'll uh, wrap up the epistle with this theme of prayer, and I'd like to read to you from chapter 5, verses 16 and following. <clears throat> Here's, again, God's word. At the end of verse 16, it says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Specifically, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. And then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. And then the closing verses, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death, and will cover a multitude of sins. So the passage begins with the idea that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And as we said earlier, that righteous person is righteous by faith, by justification, by the imputed righteousness of Christ. But James has such an emphasis on personal righteousness and obedience that we have to think that he's including also the idea of someone who's actually pursuing righteousness and, and by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, making some degree of progress. Uh, and, and he uses Elijah as an example, and I, I find it to be helpful and might even say it, it uh, 
tempers or illumines exactly how we should take 2, 8 to 13, the idea that obedience is all or nothing. And, and as we said, there's a sense in which it's all or nothing. That is to say, we should understand it's the law of the king. It describes his nature and we can't pick and choose. But it's also true that our obedience is imperfect. And uh, Elijah does illustrate that because he was righteous and he was faithful, but he was also a flawed man. And we know that after his uh, greatest victory, after the prayer and the encounter on Mount Carmel, he despaired of his life. He actually petitioned God to take his life. And so he's a flawed man, and yet God heard his prayers. And and James uh, does say that. It says, depending on your translation, he's a man with the same nature as we have, ESV, or a man just like us, NIV, or um, a man with passions like ours. King James might be a little bit of a paraphrase, but you know, it doesn't push Elijah out of the realm of um, attainability for us. He, he was like us. He prayed and things happened even though he was a man of prayer. He was also an imperfect man and our prayers, although imperfect, um, can be offered up because as we pursue righteousness sincerely and God hears those prayers. Now, we have to just pause again and say, so why is it that uh, prayer over these matters is sometimes hard in our circles, and as a pastor, uh, 16 years a pastor, 17 years a pastor, and 20-some years a professor, I've certainly talked about prayer with people many, many times, and, and often people hesitate to pray. They pray, they find it much easier to pray for other people than for themselves or their own family at times. And I'll just label three reasons for that. For, for many of us, Western sensibilities make us think, well, you know, that's, that's just unscientific. I mean, when we have an infection, we take antibiotics. If we have cancer, we get chemotherapy. Prayer just doesn't work uh, is an idea that even some Christians have, maybe not explicitly, but in the back, not the forefront of their minds. The second thing, of course, is, is pride. A lot of people hesitate to ask for help. They even hesitate to ask God for help. They want to solve their own problems. I think a third issue, maybe the biggest for devoted Christians, is the fear of disappointment. You know, if you pray for your neighbor or somebody far off for healing, and the answer is no, it, it's not as painful as if you pray for yourself or a dear member of your family. And so we're almost afraid to pray because our functional deism won't let us. We, don't, we just can't quite believe that God will act for us sometimes, and we can't bear the thought of, of the disappointment. There are common problems, and I will tell you that, um, you know, I, I certainly struggled with this at times personally uh, during one of the times when my church was doing a lot of prayer, uh, following the story I told you about earlier. It, it, these prayers do seem to come in bursts for whatever reasons, but uh, near the end of a burst of, you know, maybe praying for 20 people, uh, my own daughter, my youngest daughter, uh, had a problem and uh, she was born with a serious major skin rash that basically went from uh, her neckline uh, Adam's apple uh, down to her ankles and uh, she had a, a terrible rash that covered her whole body she she cried so much when she was a baby the walls shook uh, when we would change her clothes change her diaper wash her she would just scream and tear at her flesh we would cut her fingernails back because, you know, baby's fingernails are so sharp and she had 
just little tiny cuts from tearing at her flesh. It was so the itching was was so terrible. We went to doctors and we got medicine and and we were praying over all the time. And I actually hesitated to go to the elders in my church because number one, it's a rash, and number two, I'm you know I'm praying for her every day, and my wife and I are praying every day, and and um, and so we hesitated for a while, and you know quite a while to be honest and eventually we prayed over her when she was about 11 months old and the elders came in and, and i don't know that i've ever been more deflated uh, and hopeless and lacking in robust faith in all my life because i've been praying for her for months and the elders left and uh, we went back about the, the work of the day and I, for whatever reason I was uh, studying, reading a book in our living room and, and uh, kind of forgetting about the prayer getting immersed in my reading. And, and then I heard what seemed like soft weeping coming from upstairs and I listened and listened some more and, and uh, then I went to the bottom of the stairs and I said, is, is somebody crying? And, and indeed somebody was crying, it was my wife and she couldn't quite speak. And I got to the top of the stairs, and she choked out the words. She's playing in the bathtub for the first time in her life. She's playing in the bathtub. And she was splashing the water that had been a torment to her for months. And my wife was weeping tears of joy. And we, I looked at her flesh, and instead of 97% ferocious red rash, there was there's just one spot about the size of uh, a large coin on her back. And, you know, she had these tiny little bits of skin rash for several more months, and then her skin became perfect and clear. And it happened that day. It happened within a few hours of praying over her. Now, we can call that whatever we want. We can call it a sign. We can call it an answer to prayer, a healing. I really don't care what we call it. Um, I call it a gift from God, I call it an answer to prayer, and I, I do commend it to you. And then we do have to talk about the last two verses of our passage, which uh, tell us that we should seek the person who is wandering from God's way, wandering from the truth, and the need is to bring them back. As I mentioned earlier, when we look at sin in the midst, in the family of God, there are a couple options. We can condemn people, slander, accuse them. Or in this case, it teaches us, that's chapter 4, 11, and 12, slander is mentioned, and judgment is mentioned. Here, James says, what you need to do is, is woo the person, win the person, uh, specifically bring them back. Bring them back from their wandering and save their soul. Save the soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. I, I want to pause and make sure that you notice that it says, if someone um, wanders from the truth, and now that reminds us there is such a thing as the truth, which is you know God's fundamental teachings about who he is and who Jesus is and what he's done and who we are. We're sinners. We can't save ourselves. There is object of truth out there. Philosophers Richard Rorty, uh, for example, says, you know, there's no such thing as the truth. Um, truth is just language we use to suit our social purposes. Uh, ethics never really asks what's true or what's right. It only asks what's prudent or what is efficient or what is expedient or what can help us form our 
society or bring change circumstances for the best, so says Richard Rorty, and we say no, there is truth, and there is therefore error. And as Ezekiel chapter 3 says, um, you know, the prophet is supposed to call out the warning and say, this is not true, this is not the true way, and, and if we fail to warn the wicked that they've strayed from the truth, then his blood I will require at your hand, Ezekiel 3.18 says. Uh, but if you do your job and call out the warning, you've strayed from the truth, uh, you have fulfilled your duty, and uh, you're right with God, verses 19 to 21. There's a little hint of this also in, in 1 Timothy 4.16, as I understand it, that as we faithfully, as you pastors faithfully discharge your duty, you gain assurance that you're right with God, assurance of your salvation, and that verse can be interpreted perhaps a little differently. You can, you can study it for yourself in your time. It's also true that this little word about recalling sinners wraps up some of the themes of James. You know, James chapter 1, verses 2 to 12, uh, points out that um, life is a matter of many trials, and certainly straying due to sin is, is one of the trials, and we can win people, win sinners back from straying in a time of trial that they don't pass. Of course, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26 say that we should show kindness to a brother, and, and what would be kinder than to see a brother, and maybe an unbelieving relative or neighbor as well, who's straying from the truth, and, and to win them back, certainly that's an act of kindness as surely as feeding them or clothing them. And, and of course, James 3 mentions control the tongue, and what better way to use our tongue than to point out to someone that they are not following the truth, and there is truth, and Jesus is the truth, and, and they can be redeemed and forgiven. That's a great use of the tongue. And of course, when we call sinners back, we're asking them to humble themselves before the Lord, and he will lift us up, as James chapter for has said to us, and it's, it's a way of heeding the word, verses 22 to 25 of chapter 1. And if we truly win somebody, the word is implanted in them, chapter 1, verse 15 and 21, and they can be saved. And so this is a, a marvelous conclusion to the book of James. Again, I dearly wish I could have been with you, and I, I hope to be with you in a Q&A session. Um, but for now, I, I simply commend the book of James and all of its wisdom as given by God to you and, and pray that it will profit you personally and in your ministry. NEMA 